Hello, softball friends, and welcome to this week's edition of the Seven Innings Podcast. We're going to recap the pack. We're going to talk about the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12, and the Big 10. We're going to take a deep dive into the RPI. We're going to discuss the mighty mid-majors. We're going to shag some stats. And oh, yes, we're going to pick a player of the week. I'm Michelle Smith. We have Jen Schroeder, Kayla Bro, Amanda Scarborough, Jenny Dalton-Hill, BMO, and Horo are still with women's basketball. So we are going to take a dive into our lineup card. And Jen Schroeder, why don't we go ahead and jump in and talk a little bit about the pack. The pack started play this week and it was fun. We actually got to see you on TV on Friday, Michelle. I'm glad that we got that game in and that rain did not stop it. UW and Gabby Plain looked dominant. We'll dive into her later. UCLA absolutely took it to ASU this week and Rachel Garcia was impressive. She earned her 12th pack 12 pitcher of the week, which actually broke an all-time record. So she beat Kira girl now and has the all-time most pitcher of the week awards in UCLA history. And then Maya Brady absolutely entered the scene with some power. She was both the freshman of the week and the player of the week. And that rarely has happened in the PAC 12 conference. Uh, something I do want to touch on is Oregon swept Utah and Utah currently is sitting in last place in the pack. However, those two games, there were two games where Oregon actually had to come from behind and those scores were really tight. So I think we're seeing that the Pac-12 is going to be very competitive all the way around, but that UCLA and Washington are really kind of just, they're, they're leaps and bounds above everyone else right now. Kayla, what did you notice in the pack? Yeah, well, I think touching upon Oregon, you know, we haven't talked to them about them much in the last few weeks because they've kind of quietly taken care of business. They've won their last 11 games now. They play LMU, so they have an off weekend in the in the Pac-12 next weekend. Then they follow up with Oregon State, which I think is a winnable series for them. Until they play UCLA, they can go on a hot streak. I think Brooke Yanez, who's still throwing fire 1.49 ERA. She picked up her ninth win on the season this weekend. I think that's a team that just can quietly stir up some, some problems in the PAC 12. I think that they could have uh, eventually a good series against Arizona and challenge Washington as well. It's going to be up for grabs. And I think you make a really, really great point. We're starting to heat up things over on the West coast. I'm going to have to say it for you, Jen, I'm going to throw some brew in love. That's not typical of a wildcat. So I'm going to just say it right now. There are five hitters hitting above 400 in the UCLA lineup. Their entire starting lineup hitting above 300. Pitching only allowed two runs on the weekend. Framo is the difference maker in that lineup because she is able to stand behind Garcia and come. She was able to throw 12 innings, two complete games, only allowed five hits. For me right now, UCLA is the team to be. So I said it. I'm not going to back it up with a lot more, but Jen, I am so impressed with UCLA right now and, and Arizona tough 10 day stretch, tons of losses in Florida two back-to-back -back losses at Washington. Um, Coach Candrea did say something in his post-game talk though. He said, sometimes you have to deal with adversity to be successful in the test. And I think we forget at times we see these big losses in moments and think, oh, we hit the panic button. But uh, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And so they may have failed in the sprint, but they're hoping to win the marathon. Amanda, what did you see? 
Well, I saw what you saw with Arizona's offense. I'm just really curious what's going on in the state of Arizona with their offenses. Arizona State only scored two runs against UCLA. And look, UCLA has a great defense. They have a very solid pitching staff. At the same time, um, their strength is supposed to be their offense. They don't have shutdown pitchers like Faremo, like Garcia, like a, a Montana Fouts or Kilfoyle. That should be their strength as their offense. And they only scored those two runs. And just honestly, like in the middle of Saturday and Sunday, just looked kind of out of it. Like they looked beat and their confidence has to be shot. They'd only lost two games all season, lost four this weekend. That is tough for a team to take on. And then for Jenny, your Wildcats, six runs in six games versus ranked opponents. Six. And that again, is supposed to be one of their strengths. So I'm a little bit stumped by that. And Michelle, I was thinking, what is really the biggest strength of UCLA? Is it their defense with the 973 fielding percentage, their offense with the 373 batting average, or they're pitching with the 1.40 ERA? I mean, they top to bottom. Like I can't pick which, which facet of their game is their real strength. It's all of them. Well, exactly. I don't think you have to pick Amanda because that's, they're a complete team. And when you play the game at that high of a level in every facet of it, that's why you're the defending national champion. So I think that, that we're seeing just really good, com a complete team. What do you think, Jen Schroeder? Well, one thing I noticed, and we don't dive much into strategy, really coaching strategy in this podcast, but one thing when you watched UCLA this weekend, their coaching staff got really smart with their arms. So in game three, they actually started Holly Acevedo and Arizona State loaded this in the first inning. Well, they had Rachel Garcia in the DP spot. So with the bases loaded and no outs, Kelly, Kelly I calls timeout. Rachel, go in, get two outs. Thank you. Goes back to the dugout, flips, Holly's back in the game, and she goes out the next inning. To have that person in the DP spot, to have Rachel Garcia, who struck out 21 batters in 13 innings this weekend and did not give up a run, is such a weapon to have on your bench, in your lineup all the time. So it's interesting strategy by UCLA as well that I really liked. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Jen, it brings up a great point how valuable it is to have hitting pitchers that are in the starting lineup that you can plug in and, and you're not taking, you know, they're not in and out of the lineup. I mean, she could do that. She could come in and save any member of their staff at any point when you're in that DP spot. So we see that was Selby. Shelby Sonsiri with LSU. A lot of the unicorns, as Amanda likes to call them, um, and it just shows their value when they are hitting pitchers. So the Pac-12 this coming weekend, we've got UW at ASU, Oregon State at Arizona, UCLA at Cal, Stanford at Utah. And um, back to your point, Amanda, about what happened to the, uh, the hitters from Arizona. I think Coach Candrea said it best that good pitching shuts down good hitting. And so that, uh, that good hitting is going to have to figure out how to hit that good pitching. And, you know, that's always the key to the postseason. The, the teams that can go in and be hot and hit off some of the, the best pitching in the country usually end up winning that championship. So let's go ahead and move down to number two on our lineup card. Let's give Arkansas a little bit of love. They've got outstanding pitching in the circle with Mary Half. They are 6-0 and to the start of the SEC. Best start ever. Gibson and Burnside, 25 home runs. They're one of the top home run hitting teams uh, in the entire country. They have... Mississippi State coming to town, who's 0-6, so there's a good chance that they could sweep that series, potentially start 9-0 and in the SEC, which is just outstanding. They will have 
in the future, they will go to Auburn. They've got Alabama at home. They will go to UGA, Mizzou at home, and then they would finish up their SEC schedule at LSU. But Amanda, what are you seeing from Arkansas this year? I love their late inning heroics. I love their energy. I love the way that they genuinely look like they believe in each other in all parts of the game and the dugout. Um, I love the energy and the emotion that Courtney Diefel is showing coaching third base whenever they have those late inning heroics. So I feel like this team has just been so much fun to watch and you can never count them out. Michelle, you mentioned uh, Burnside and Gibson with the 25 home runs. Um, we also got to see Gibson, Burnside, and Hannah McEwen, all three in the lineup and hopefully healthy. That's a good sign for Arkansas, hopefully healthy. Um, and being able, I mean, that's a really, really tough lineup for them to go up against. Michelle, you mentioned they're pitching with Mary Half. She has a 0.87 ERA uh, for the entire season. However, her ERA is better in SEC play at 0.60. So she has four wins. She looks like she's throwing the ball really well. And this Arkansas team is going to be tough to beat Jenny. Well, and the one thing that I think we don't talk about when we talk about Arkansas is their stolen base numbers. There's still just one stolen base on the year. They're one for three. They do have some speed, but when you talk to Coach Dyfel, she says, you know, we're not looking to take or put outs on the board with the kind of hitting that we've been able to produce this year. So we're happy to leave them on first and let those big hitters come through and hit them in. Kayla, what have you seen? Well, I got to watch a, a post-game interview from Coach Stifel and you know somebody asked her about you know the two walk-off wins and why her team was able to do that. And she said they just have a ton of heart, a ton of fight. And it doesn't matter whose turn it is, they're ready. And I think that's such a good quality sign of a team that's prepared. It's next man up. If somebody's out for the week, if somebody can't play, somebody doesn't come through, it's your turn. So getting that ownership and being able to execute and say, hey, you know what, it's okay if this player doesn't get it done, I'm going to next, it is why teams are successful and why you create and how you create winning cultures at schools and what Coach Stifel has been able to do. And, you know, they've had to deal with that. They've had to deal with lineup changes, roster changes, with COVID, with injury, whatever it may be. And, you know, I think the one thing that's kind of interesting for me is I look at two of their losses and it comes against Liberty, who, who's challenged a lot of teams and played some teams well this year. They played Alabama well. They played LSU well and, and McNeese. So, you know, a couple of their losses are against unranked opponents. So I don't know if that's just not being ready to go. But when they face a top 25 opponent, they are challenging and, and they turn it on. Yeah. And, and Kayla, you bring up a great point um, about their challenges. We talked about their schedule already. They don't play, however, Kentucky, Tennessee or Florida in the SEC this year. So it will be interesting over the last, what has it been, 10 plus years, it's regular season champs have been Alabama or Florida. It will be interesting to see if Arkansas can challenge for that top spot in the SEC. So on that note, why don't we go ahead and move down to number three on the lineup card. And Kayla, we're going to talk a little bit about an SEC recap as well as some of the upcoming games. And then we're also going to fill in some information on the Big 10 and the Big 12. What do you got for us, Kayla? Yeah, I think it was an interesting past week in the SEC. Obviously, the big matchup was LSU, or excuse me, Alabama versus Tennessee, which 
was an incredible pitching performance for Rogers, for Fouts, and for Kilfoyle. I mean, those obviously are some of the best pitchers in the entire conference. And, and I loved, and Amanda, you called this game, but I loved on Sunday that Fouts and Rogers looked like they stepped their game up to another level through those first five innings. They looked competitive. They looked ready to go. They were just spot on on their location, uh, hitting the strike zone, burying batters. It was just really, really cool to see. And what it came down to was some mistakes from a defensive perspective, just not making the plays when you need to. And Alabama coming up with some big clutch hits when they needed to. Nothing fancy, just some big clutch hits um, when it came down to it. And another interesting thing that I saw this weekend, so I got to call the Mizzou and Georgia series, which if you missed it, was an interesting one. Uh, Georgia drops game one. They hit one home run. They look basically like they're not in the game at all Mizzou easily wins six to one in the next two games Georgia comes out on fire you guys they had nine home runs total on the weekend they hit uh eight combined eight Missouri and Georgia hit eight in that game too but Georgia had five home runs it was uh, it was a derby it wasn't an actual game I'm pretty sure but the interesting thing so Georgia ended up taking two or three against Mizzou the interesting thing was Georgia, despite hitting so well and hitting nine home runs as a team on the weekend, they had 11 errors, you guys. That is so many errors. And if you go face a team with better pitching than Mizzou and you have 11 errors, you're going to get steamrolled. I don't care how many home runs that you hit. So that's a big area that they're going to have to improve upon. But, you know, Jen, what did you see in the SEC? That Alabama-Tennessee series was so good. And Amanda, I know you had those games or two of them, and we talked quite a bit. My one worry about Alabama, Kayla, is offensively, they're finding a way to get it done, but they only scored in one inning of that Sunday game. And with the huge loss of Bailey Dowling, who is their offensive leader, their best infielder, in my opinion, to me, I'm very nervous to see how they finish out the SEC. What do you think, Kayla? Uh, well, their home run numbers are so low comparatively. And I know we were kind of having this rare year where teams like Oklahoma, Arkansas are just blasting incredible numbers. But Alabama has one of the worst home run hitting teams in the entire conference. And I'm not saying that you're all home run and you're not going to be able to win without hitting the long ball, but it makes such a difference. It, home runs can be such a killer for momentum, for big innings and all that kind of thing. So I think as you know, you move forward, you got to find ways, especially after losing Bailey Dowling, how do you create some power numbers, even if it's not home run, some gap to gap power, Amanda, what do you think? Well, to your point, Alabama is not that type of team and they lost their best home run hitter this weekend with Bailey Dowling. I mean, she's a freshman, led their team in home runs and an RBI. So I'm interested to see how this offense shifts with Savannah Woodard now coming to play second base. She's a totally different player than Bailey Dowling. So how will coach Murphy and their coaching staff be able to work this offense to be able to generate some more runs? Because like you said, Jen, I mean, they're just, it's, it's tough going sometimes with Alabama to be able to put some things together. All right. So there's a recap on the sec upcoming games is uh, let's see, we've got Auburn at Mizzou. We have LSU at Florida. That game on Saturday will be at five Eastern on ESPN. That'll be a good one. 18 and eight LSU at 21 and two Florida. Um, so I'll be calling that one. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great matchup. UGA is at Old Miss, South Carolina at Texas A&M, Bama at Kentucky. That'll be a good one. That one's on ESPN two at three 30 
on Sunday and on Monday on the SEC network at seven o'clock. So we've got some really good matchups in the SEC. Uh, let's talk real quick about the Big Ten before we dive into the Big 12. So Big Ten off last weekend. Wisconsin is at Northwestern, Minnesota at Illinois, Michigan at Indiana, Penn State, Nebraska, Maryland, Ohio State, and Iowa at Purdue. And ladies, one of the things that's interesting when you look at the NCAA stats and you look at the team earned run average, three of the top five teams are Big Ten pitching staffs, Illinois, Michigan, Northwestern, all in the top five in ERA for pitching staff sub one. And so it makes me wonder, um, are there, is the pitching that good in the Big Ten or the hitters just not getting enough at-bats um, and consistent at-bats to be able to put some runs up on the board? So it will be interesting to see the Big Ten coming back into action this weekend. Um, and why don't we go ahead and roll over into the Big 12? I know that Oklahoma played Team Mexico, and they you know, were pretty successful against the number five team in the world. And uh, Oklahoma State, they've stubbed their toe a little bit lately. Go ahead, ladies, throw the daggers in me. Talk a little bit about Oklahoma State and what you saw. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, Oklahoma State, we, we were thinking all season, they're a top 10 team. They're going to be at the World Series. They're going to be one of the top eight teams. And then they lose to Wichita State and Kansas City, who Arkansas absolutely just took care of this week. Um, now, mind you, we're not really sure what's going on with Maxwell and Eberly. Um, they're in and out of the lineup. There's some, is injury, is it COVID? Who, who knows? We're unsure. Um, but I think that Oklahoma State has to find a way to win games, especially against a team like Kansas City without them. And then I want to give a little love to Texas Tech in the Big 12. They made Sports Center this week. I don't know if any of you saw it, but they hit three grand slams in one game. It was a Sports Center must see. Yep. And then my favorite thing was Kelsey Leach, who's one of the has the one of the best arms in college softball. She ended that game with a back pick to second base off her knees. It was so sick. So Texas Tech is just a team that's scrappy, that doesn't win a ton of games, but they're finding ways to make statements. And so I'm really interested to see if they're going to be a team who maybe upsets or wins some games against Iowa State and Oklahoma State in the Big 12. I think they have a chance to be a little competitive. And then OU's dominance against Team Mexico. Now, I, I'm, I'm unsure if we even talked about this on this podcast, but both the Romero sisters are now members of Team Mexico. So that's Sydney Romero now going back into Norman. Um, that's got to feel good. That's got to have a lot of energy for both teams as she was on the coaching staff last year. Uh, but OU crushed Danielle O'Toole, guys. And she's one of the best pitchers in the NCAA in her time. Um, Amanda, I know you were watching that. What stood out to you about OU and their offense? And we've talked about it every week, but to see them against Mexico is something, something different. It's the amount of runs that they scored. I mean, they had that two to one game, which is a close game on Saturday, right? So they can win in the blowouts that they, and they can win in the close games too. They scored 11 runs on Friday and 12 runs on Sunday. So the only one that was the only game that was even close was that two to one matchup. So we've talked about how they've played a bit of an easier schedule to this point, And that's been reflected in their RPI, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. Uh, but needless to say, I, you know, this is probably their best competition all year is team Mexico. It won't count for their stats or anything, but um, they scored a bunch of runs. Well, and I wonder, are, are they going to need a moment where they, 
have to figure out what does the panic button look like? I don't know that they've had a moment so far where they've felt their back against the wall and having to claw their way out of it. And so the big bats have kept them out of that. Their pitching staff has kept them on top. And so, you know, I remember when I played, I always kind of, I didn't want the moment where we lost, but I wanted the team to feel that so that the urgency was there before we got to that moment again. And I don't know who's going to give Oklahoma that game to see what the panic button even looks like. So we will find out is the panic button going to be pressed this year coming up in big 12 play for the Sooners. All right, let's go ahead and move into the cleanup spot. Let's talk a little bit about the RPI dive deep into it. First off, Jenny, why don't you give us a little bit of an idea what the RPI is and how it's actually computerized or formulated? Well, I am no math major, but I will tell you how it's how it is uh, calculated and then you can do your math at home. So RPI is made up of three different categories. The first is your division one winning percentage that takes up 25%. Your strength of schedule takes up 50% and your opponent's strength of schedule takes up the additional 25% of that rating. So you take all of those and remember RPI is only one factor used by the committee to produce seedings and also select teams for the postseason. So RPI is not the end of the road, but it is definitely a major component. And I would say that RPI is actually used more when it comes down to two teams or three teams that they're looking at in the postseason. If a committee member is evaluating those two or three teams and putting them together, the RPI is looking for a wide difference in number. And a wide difference can be, you know, just 20 or more places. But when it comes to RPI, sometimes your numbers are only separated by a thousandth of a point. I mean, your RPI numbers at the end of the year become so close together that a wide range may not be as wide as what you think of in America. So um, I think the ACC right now has eight teams in the top 50 in RPI, which really helps them because as they go through their conference schedule, their numbers probably won't drop because they'll be playing high level RPI teams, which is what you're looking at in a conference schedule of maybe a mid-major. Sometimes when a mid-major team, they really heavy schedule at the beginning of their year, trying to play a lot of high ranking teams so that their RPI number is padded as they head into their conference schedule. Well, we've got a surprise one with RPI this year, Boston U. They're coming in. I mean, Michelle, you and I talked about it a little bit, but uh, you're, they're coming in at number five. Now they're 11 and one, but guys, I'm going to throw it out there. I don't see how they're a number five in RPI. I'm going to throw it out to the rest of you, but I went through their schedule. I went through their opponent's schedules and I just don't see it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you as well. I was kind of baffled on the number five um, for Boston, uh, number one in the RPI this week. And remember, every week it's, it's going to change, obviously, de determining the records and, and the opponents. But Alabama one, UCLA two, LSU three, Florida for Boston, that's the one that we're kind of all scratching our heads with at number five. Um, the ACC, as you mentioned, very strong. Um, they've got uh, Florida State at six, Duke at nine, Virginia Tech at 10. So they've got three teams in the top 10. And then, of course, Clemson, 
is coming in at 16. Second year program, impressive for them. 24 is Notre Dame, 29 Virginia, um, Louisville at 30, excuse me, 43 and North Carolina at 44. So the ACC very, very well represented. One of the things that kind of stuck out to me as well, ladies, is in the, um, the Big Ten. Michigan State, three and nine is at 88, but how about Illinois that they're 10 and two and they're at 91. I thought that that was kind of interesting. And again, I think this is very fluid. Things are going to change. Um, number one ranked uh, team uh, in the big 10, 11 and one Northwestern is only at 41. So again, playing only conference opponents uh, for the big 10 will be interesting to see how that plays out down the road. Uh, Jen, what, what else do you have? Another one that stood out to me, there were two teams sitting at 11 and 12 in the RPI that I thought were interesting. We talked about Liberty already. They came in at number 11. Um, and then George Washington came in at number, tw number 12 in the Atlantic 10. So for me, those were two schools. I expected Liberty, but George Washington was also a team that kind of snuck in that had flown under my radar coming in. And then Villanova coming in at number 14. Um, I'm going to throw out a little love to UMBC. I was able to cover them in the postseason. I love Courtney Coppersmith, their ace in the circle, and they came in at number 27. So I'm hoping that they can continue to keep that RPI high enough um, for the postseason. You guys, I think it's really important for the fans to understand that this is an opinion based. I saw a lot of comments like on social media acting like it was, you know, the opinions of the selection committee and that's just not true. So it's super important to realize that like a computer is coming up with these numbers and plugging in the equation to be able to generate it. Um, I also wanted to talk about how Oklahoma, the undefeated team, their RPI is 23. And so when I we talk about the non-conference schedule and how Oklahoma has played an easier schedule up to this point, I think about the impact of not having the Mary Nutter tournaments and also the St. Pete Clearwater Elite Invitational Tournament that's run by an ESPN. We didn't have those. And those are usually great head-to-head -head competition where teams are able to get in um, games against quality, quality opponents that you know, they, they're not going to get possibly this year because of COVID restrictions. Some really, really good points, Amanda. I was going to mention Oklahoma too. It just shows you, and I mean this in, in not a disrespectful foot, it shows how weak their schedule was if they're undefeated and, and they're getting that 23 in the RPI. I think beyond that, um, you know, even in within the, like, if you go Google RPI and one of the best ways to improve an RPI is to play a good out-of-conference schedule. Your conference, to some degree, is pretty much set, and, and that's why you see absolutely no Big Ten teams in the top 30 of the RPI. It's because they're not going to have any kind of strength outside their own conference. They're basically going to sit there for the rest of the year, and nobody's going to make a lot of substantial moves upwards now. Uh, and I will shout out, there are a few coaches around the country that year and year in and year out, they understand what it takes to have good quality non-conference opponents and they go schedule those. There are coaches that go hunt certain programs because they know they're going to have great RPI numbers and they go and schedule those on purpose. So a lot of this you think is just kind of a magical number that appears in some ways, but there's a lot of strategic planning that goes into creating a good RPI and it shows by a lot of the teams in the top 10. 
Kayla, to your point, I know out West over here, the big West coaches a few years ago got together and they said, Hey, as a conference, we all need to schedule better out of conference games so that our in-conference schedule will weight higher in for our RPI come postseason. Cause the big West is a team that will only get one team that will advance to the tournament. So if they ever want to have two teams advance to a tournament, they all collectively have to go play a stronger strength of schedule in preseason this year because of covid like amanda said those two huge tournaments i think something that stands out to me is the fact that there's only one pac-12 team in the top 10 and to be very honest i think ucla is ranked too high in this rpi i don't think they're the number two team as far as rpi and then you've got the acc that has three teams in the top 10 they started their conference two weeks before the Pac-12. You've got five SEC teams. They started their conference a week before the, the Pac-12. So you've got these people competing against better competition earlier in the year because of COVID. We weren't able to really have those big tournaments. And then you see the Big Ten only playing against one another. And you can tell that's that's very much going to hurt them in the RPI and most likely hurt them in postseason seedings. Yeah, absolutely. All good points, ladies. And remember the reason that RPI and that strength of schedule, all that is so important. It really comes down to hosting. All those programs really want to be that super regional host if possible working backwards. So 16 for regionals, trickling down to those eight super regional sites, obviously making your job a little bit easier to get to Oklahoma City this year. Because of COVID will be a little bit different. The postseason more than likely will be predetermined um, sites coming up, but uh, more information will, will be released in, in the next couple of weeks so that we know that the uh, what the postseason for softball looks like. So great discussion on the RPI, uh, very educational. And so why don't we go ahead and move down to number five on our lineup card and talk about the fact that Gabby is plain dealing. She was outstanding in that matchup against Arizona um, you know, I had the privilege to call that, that game. And luckily we did make it through, even with the weather condition, she had a career high 16 strikeouts against a really strong Arizona offense. She is the fastest Husky to 50 wins in her career. Check this out. You guys, she has 20 plus double digit strikeout games, 20 plus. Okay. But here's the most important and relevant, uh, statistics for me this year. 25 times this year alone, she has struck out the side. I mean, think about that. <laughs> Simply incredible. She was just uh, outstanding in the circle. What else did, did you all see uh, watching that, that series this weekend? I know I reached out to you during that game to say, how do you hit this pitch? I mean, the ball was dancing. It was ridiculous. And I see the game through a hitter's eyes. And when I think about standing in against Gabby playing, I think, could I move in the box to attack that before it breaks? Could I, you know, move to the back of the box to allow the ball travel more and really read that. But Michelle, I don't know what move I would make to hit Gabby playing. I think I would try to maybe attack her earlier in the count. But then once she realizes that's the game plan, she's going to start throwing out of the zone to start. I mean, she has been so dominant in the circle. My question about Gabby Plain is, can the rest of the pitching staff step up behind her? Because the next, she has an ERA um, 
of 0.62 right now. The next closest ERA in their lineup is Kelly Lynch at a 3.18. So for me, it's going to be hard not only to advance all the way through if they get to Oklahoma City, to advance all the way through to the championship series, but then how do you win a national championship against an opponent two times in a row when you've already faced them perhaps throughout the year and then also through the rest of Oklahoma City? Yeah, it, it bring up really good points there, uh, JDH, because they are, uh, UW is going to be playing uh, at ASU this weekend. Who else can throw besides Gabby playing? Because remember, this is, this is a four-game series now. They added the extra game, uh, the doubleheader on Saturday. So it will be very interesting to see how Gabby, um, if she can keep her tank full as they move uh, through the Pac-12 and into the postseason. So why don't we go ahead and move on at this point into the mighty mid-majors. We're going to give the mid-majors some love and talk about some of the amazing athletes that have been uh, racking up some really big numbers uh, outside the Power Five conferences. So Amanda, why don't you jump in and go first? Who are you going to give some love to? Well, I'm going to give some love to Butters. That's what they call her, Madison Paragon of Wichita State. But literally, I'm going to refer to her as Butters because that's what everybody does. So I want to be, you know, like all of her teammates and her coaches and all of her friends and family too. So um, Butters actually is a senior for Wichita State. She's the career home run leader, not just for Wichita State, but for the American Athletic Conference. The same thing goes for RBIs and the same thing goes for doubles. So she is the career leader in all of those off offensive categories. And it was so great for her because she ended last year, three home runs short of the school record of the Wichita state record. However, because she, you know, she was able to get that extra year because of COVID she's making the most of it this year, eight home runs, 24 RBIs. She had Michelle closure ears, uh, two for three day against Oklahoma state where she had two RBIs, three runs. She hit a home run against them. And then also against Iowa state, she was one for three with two RBIs. So against the ranked team, she's doing it as well. And butters, I mean, just what a career that she's going to have at Wichita state. So good. Kayla. Uh, yeah, I wanted to a shout out a, a freshman that, you know, plays for central Connecticut, their season pretty much just got started. They're only six games in, uh, you know, she started her season out oh, and over seven and then makes this incredible comeback ends up going five for 11 on the weekend. hits three home runs, including a game winning grand slam. And that's going to be Paige Stringer. What a stud to come out. And it's hard, as you guys know, to kind of start your career over and then to turn it around in such a incredible fashion, hit three home runs and, and get a, game-winning hit over St. Mary's is a really big deal. So shout out Paige Stringer, way to go in, in your first few games uh, in NCAA softball. I want to talk about a battery, but mostly highlight a pitcher. I feel like it's opposite day. Amanda highlights a catcher. I'm going to highlight a pitcher. Uh, so out of Fresno State, Haley Dulcini, she just earned her fourth consecutive Mountain West Pitcher of the Week award. And when I looked at what she did this week, I was looking at Rachel Garcia's stats who had 21 Ks and 13 innings. I thought that was really impressive. Oh no, Haley had 26 Ks in 13 innings. So she's like Rachel Garcia who, uh, but what I really want to highlight is a couple weeks ago on Twitter, I had uh, put up a question. I said, who's the best catcher in the country? 
And Haley wrote me and wrote all about her own catcher and what she does for her. And uh, that's Kelsey Carrasco. Last year, Kelsey Carrasco actually lost her dad right before um, coming to Cal State Fullerton to play when Fresno State actually upset Texas, if you guys remember. Kelsey lost her dad a day before and Haley and Kelsey have created this undeniable bond. I've gotten to watch some of their live streams and just seeing the way that those two connect on the field. Uh, obviously four Mountain West Pitcher of the Week awards in a row. And I know that she credits her catcher. So I just wanted to highlight that battery. Jenny, who are you highlighting today? So I'm going to call out a junior from Winthrop, Macy McCall. So I think it's back or it's a opposite day because I'm going to highlight a leadoff hitter who plays center field. So Kayla, this is a shout out to you, right? So right now the team is hitting at 500. They're 14 and 14, but in those 28 games, Macy McCall, the leadoff hitter is hitting 418. She has the most walks in the NCA with 25. She has scored 25 runs. And she leads the country with 27 stolen bases. So for me, talk about a tone setter. She is leading the way with a strong average at the top of the lineup, but also a walk is as good as a double when it comes to Macy McCall. You put her on first, she's just going to take second. So shout out to Macy McCall. Nice work. Awesome, ladies. All right. And I'm going to jump in and talk about a couple of big home run hitters. I know they're coming from the pitcher, but uh, Sammy Punch from UNI and Ainsley Gilbreth from Winthrop. Both of them seniors, shortstop, first baseman, respectively, 12 home runs each. Pretty impressive. Tied for sixth in the NCAA. So bringing a lot of power to the box for both Sammy and Ansley. So there we have it. A lot of mighty mid-majors giving him some love. A lot of, a lot of times we talk about the power five and, and who we see on, um, on our broadcast networks, but uh, I love the fact that there's a lot of great softball being played around the country and just uh, giving them a little bit of their due. So Scro, Bro, Scarborough, JDH, Smitty, we are uh, all here on the, um, on the podcast, behind the scenes, we've got Kim, the PR superstar, Buzz Lightmere, Cropper, the superstar, B-Chaps, Jersey Meg is joining us this week since she's back from the uh, NCAA wrestling uh, championships. But uh, that's going to take us now to Amanda Scarborough, and we're going to answer some questions from the Twitterverse. Man, people love to ask us questions, you guys. And they're they're like very um, eclectic, kind of wide ranging. So Michelle, this one, I'm going to start with you because there's an international rule that, that actually ties into this. So Big Farms from Baltimore, Ohio, his favorite team is the Ohio University Bobcats. His question is more about um, the NCAA instituting a safety base at first base to be able to hopefully prevent types of injuries like we saw this weekend when Alabama's Bailey Dowling was covering first base on a bunt. There was, it didn't look like a collision contact injury, but it still brings up the question of maybe potentially implementing a safety base. What do you say? Yeah, you know, so we use that in international play. And the, the whole idea is that if you hit the ball on the infield, you have to hit the orange bag, which is inside 
uh, or on the foul side of the, um, the field. And so what it does is it helps alleviate potential collisions when both the fielder and the base runner are, are, are really fighting to get to that bag. So I like it. I've played with it, obviously, the majority of my career in international play, also in the Japanese professional league. So I think it's a, it is a safety asset. I would love for the NCAA to take a look at it, to hopefully cut down on collisions over at first base. I absolutely think it's, um, it is an asset to our game. Yeah, I definitely think it's something that they should consider as well. Um, next question, Stephanie from Pittsburgh, PA. Her favorite team is Washington. So all the way on the other side of the country. Um, why do you think Tennessee has been ranked so low, meaning below top 10 this year? Kayla, what do you think? Well, I think you have to start for Tennessee and you look at their talent in the circle and Ashley Rogers, and that's an obvious way that a team is going to get recognition. It's kind of a similar situation to the Washington Huskies where they have this ultra dominant pitcher. So I think the reason that they get the love is because they know if you put Ashley Rogers in the circle, you have an opportunity to be every anyone in the country. And then beyond that, I think Tennessee's made a huge improvements over, over the last few years and they're trying to, um, increase their offensive ability they've got some big transfers in they're starting to gain some momentum and some ground so I think Tennessee is a team that I mean they showed they're competitive against an Alabama team that's ranked in the top three um, and they have the potential to upset some teams but again as you guys know so much of the impact of your rating is starts in the circle if you have a good pitching staff you're going to go pretty far I think Tennessee maybe doesn't have the best staff but they've got a true true ace that leads the way for the volunteers. Yeah. I think that this year they started kind of high in the polls because of the way the year that they had last year. So I think once you start higher 20, 25, you really have to have some big wins, I think in order to climb the charts. Okay. So this next one is from Edub from Towson, Maryland. He is a huge UNCG and LSU fan. Also a diehard fan of ours in the seven podcast. Her question is what three mid-major programs do you think could make some noise in the postseason this year, Jenny? It's a great question because that's the one we're always looking at. There's always the repeat offenders that we talk about every week, but who does it make some noise? I really like Liberty. They're sitting at 21 and nine. They've played a really tough schedule and have challenged themselves early. That's going to help them as they head, go through conference prep conference play. I also like James Madison. They're one of the undefeateds that are left nine and zero this year on the season. And they're, they're always coming into the postseason trying to shake things up. And I also really like Wichita state. Those three teams for me stand out. Jen, what do you think? Yeah, I, I really, this is terrible. I had to go take a quick look. I feel like I've been so ingrained in like the top, you know, power five. So this is good question for me because it got me to think a little different. Uh, for sure, Texas State. I think that they're a team that could make some noise. I think what's tough about being a team from Texas is that you face people like Texas and Oklahoma because of your region. So if in fact there are these predetermined sites, will teams that typically go to a certain location, will they get shipped across the country and will they have a chance at maybe, you know, being matched up with someone who they can compete with? UCF is another one. We saw them take down Arizona. Um, and then I would agree with Wichita State. I think that they've been a sleeper this year thus far, but they started their season late. And so they had that huge win against Oklahoma State. So I think Texas State, UCF, and Wichita State are three teams that could make some noise in postseason. 
Yeah, I think Houston might be another one. I'm not sure if that was mentioned already. Although their record doesn't reflect it, they've played a really challenging schedule and they have some big wins too. Okay, last one. Let's go to Cindy Ellis. She is in Jacksonville, Alabama, and she's a Florida fan. Um, she had, oh, being a Florida fan, they had an amazing walk-on player in Michelle Moultrie. And she was curious about any more walk-ons that come to our mind that also started as a walk-on um, yeah. So what do you think, Jen? Does any come to mind in history? I've got two. So UCLA, uh, we had a second baseman and I say we, cause I was her teammate named Caitlin Bainey and she was from Arizona. She came, she walked onto UCLA in her freshman year. She led the entire NCAA with 20 home runs. She had a very memorable hit against Kat Osterman to win from behind and take them to the national championship. Um, and then I'm going to go with, now this is my favorite walk-on story. It used to be Michelle Moultrie. Now it is Amy Chelevold from Arizona. And her name is actually Amy Chelevold Hillenbrand now. And the Wildcats play at Hillenbrand Stadium. So not only was she a walk-on who Larry Ray found at a college volleyball game. She was not a softball player. She was playing volleyball for uh, the University of Santa Barbara. One of her friends needed a pickup player. She went and played some pickup softball with her friend. She became the first Arizona Wildcat ever to be a four-time All-Pac-10 then honoree. And she was a four-time NCAA national champion. And she found the love of her life who the stadium just so happened to be named after. So if that's not just like a story that should have a movie named after it, I don't know what is. Jenny, what do you have? Well, Tevi came in and they were expecting her to be an outfielder because of her, of her speed, but she just never could really develop that overhand throw because of her volleyball experience. But she came on to the Arizona staff because of her friend who was already on the Arizona roster, Jamie Hagan who was the center fielder. And so there was a little bit of a connection, but I don't know that anybody knew how good Chevy really would be. And there are also um, a couple of current walk-ons right now. Kaylin Hannon, Kaylin Hannon for Tennessee. Um, she is a player that walked on to Tennessee and convinced Ralph and Karen weekly. I can show you that I can play here after the first couple of years, after her sophomore year and her exit meeting, they were like, you know what? You might want to think about going somewhere else because you might be able to play somewhere and start. And she said, no, don't say that to me again. That's not what I want to hear. It doesn't matter to me that I could play at other schools. I want to play here and look at her. Now she is a starter on scholarship at Tennessee. Other one that I wanted to mention is Carly Hamilton at Texas tech, who was a third team all American in 2019. She started on books for them and is a huge player in the tech team. Michelle. Awesome. Really good information uh, and some great questions coming from the Twitterverse. So uh, if you uh, follow us at seven innings podcast, send us your questions for next week. Uh, we'd love to, to be able to answer them week after week. So that's going to lead us to number eight on the lineup card. One of our favorite spots. Some stats. This week on Shaggin' Stats. All right, ladies. Well, I'm going to jump in first and give you uh, my Shaggin' Stat. And my number is 1,300. 1,300 is the OPS for Erin Koffel, freshman from Kentucky. She's batting 402, 10 home runs on the year. 
and she will be taking on a very strong Alabama pitching staff coming up this weekend. So we'll see if she can continue to, to bash the ball out of the yard for the Wildcats. Amanda, what do you got? I have 18 and 17. 18 is the amount of games that Duke has won straight. 17 is the amount of games that Clemson has won straight and they play each other this weekend. They're at this top of the ACC standings right now. My number is 687. That number is the amount of days it's been that BYU has played a home game. So they play this week for the first time in 687 days. Yeah, I'm going to shout out some pitchers. We didn't really get to talk about Florida much, but they basically handled Mississippi State just as well as you can. It's the first time since 2017 that the Gators hadn't allowed a run in a conference series. And the last players who did that were Ocasio, Barnhill, and Gorley. So those are three of the best collegiate pitchers of all time that have worn a Gator uniform. And Natalie Hightower pitched in all three games this weekend. They gave up zero runs. And it's the first time that they've done that on the road since 2009. I want to give a little love to Carly Hamilton. Nine is her number. She had nine RBIs on the day and that matched her entire RBI total coming into the weekend. That was Shagging Stats. So, all right, ladies, that's going to bring us down to number nine on the lineup card, our player of the week. And um, so this, uh, this week, I'm just going to blurt out a couple of um, options and I don't want to be the, uh, <laughs> the decision maker. I'm going to, I'll leave that up to either Amanda or Jen Schroeder to be able to figure out which one uh, is going to be the, the, the seven innings player of the week. I'm going to throw out Gabby Plain, obviously two and O on the weekend against Arizona. She had that career high 16 strikeouts in game one. Um, another name maybe up for consideration, Danielle Gibson. She was the sec player of the week, hit 400 on the week end. Um, and then how about, uh, Elizabeth Hightower, um, Kayla, you had mentioned her pitcher of the week for the sec. So a couple of names I'm throwing out there. Uh, what else, who else wants to nominate a potential player of the week? I'm nominating my Brady first time nominating a Bruin. She was six for eight on the weekend. Half of her hits were all home runs. She had a home run in three of the last four games. One of which is a grand slam pac 12 player and freshman of the week with a diving catch. She was insane. I'll nominate another Bruin. That's how good they were this week. I'm just going to say it, but I think Rachel Garcia really deserves it. She pitched 13.2 innings, some of them in relief. She was four for 10 on the weekend, two home runs and only allowed one earned run against ASU. There's so many, I was going to add Valerie Cagle, but it's like, we just have so many to choose from already. So I'm not going to add on to the pile, although I will say she had a really good weekend. It's insane. I know. So maybe we need to do player of the uh, week per conference and make our jobs a little bit easier. So, all right. So um, who are we voting for? I, I think um, Jenny Dalton Hill, you convinced me. I'm going to go with Rachel Garcia. But wait, one thing, Maya got player of the week in the conference. Rachel didn't. <laughs> I, I like Maya Brady. The other thing that stuck out to me on Maya Brady is all of her home runs were oppo home runs. That's hard yeah, to yeah. do. All right. Half, like that. half of her hits were home runs. Uh, okay, okay, but Maya she didn't Brady. pitch too. <laughs> Unicorn, right? Her diving catch. All right. So we've got two Mayas and I think we have two Rachel Garcias. Amanda, it's up to you. See, I told you I wasn't going to have to do it this weekend. Uh, Lee, I just saw that one coming. Um, I'm going to go with Maya Brady. I usually always 
pick the pitchers, especially the hitting pitchers, but I'm going to go with Maya Brady. Awesome. Well, I think uh, any of the athletes we talked about would have been a great choice for the seven innings podcast player of the week. So there you have it. Another episode of the seven innings podcast comes to a wrap. We will hopefully have BMO and Horo back from basketball next week. Um, but again, remember to get your questions in on Twitter so that we can answer them next week. Thanks for joining us. Hope you've enjoyed this edition of the seven innings podcast. Thank you.